Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, if you've listened to our program a few times and you like us, there's a way that you can really help us, and that is subscribe to us on iTunes. It increases our visibility, and that helps us get more people listening to us. And send us ideas. We'd love to hear from you about ideas for guests, topics for shows. Let's make it a conversation. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Good ideas from the world's best schools. Lucy Crahan. Intelligence is not something that you have or you don't have, but something which can grow dependent on the level of effort you put in. One of the things that I saw that went across all of the top performing countries have genuinely high academic expectations of all children. You know, what happens if a school is underperforming? The response was always they get supported to improve. There's a real contrast there between how this situation is dealt with in the UK and I believe in the US as well. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, most of us have heard about Pisa, the leaning tower in Italy, but the one we're talking about today is Pisa, or Pizza, the the program for international student assessments. Right. This Pisa measures test results for math and reading for 15-year-old students in more than three dozen of the world's leading nations. And no surprise here, Asian students came out on top of the scores, with U.S. students way below the top performing countries, actually coming near the bottom of the pack for math scores. So what can we learn from the world's best performing school systems? Let's find out more about fixes from British teacher Lucy Crahan, author of the entertaining and educational book Cleverland. Yeah, Lucy, you went on quite a journey uh, going around the world to visit teachers and classrooms in countries where teenagers rank top in the world for reading math and science. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Lucy Crahan joins us via Skype from Bath or Bath, England. Can I ask you why you wrote the book? Absolutely. I hadn't intended to write one, but I felt that too often you have politicians who will bring in new educational reform based on what they say is what's going on in other countries. And actually, when you look at it more closely, you'll find that they are cherry picking. So they are choosing bits and bobs which suit their own agenda, but that don't necessarily stack up in terms of the evidence on what works. So I decided to write a book because I wanted more people to understand what is actually going on in these top performing countries. What can we learn so that they can hold politicians to account? 
for their decisions. Tell us about your trip and where you went to see these schools and, and fellow teachers. Sure. So I went to Finland, Canada, Japan, Shanghai, China, and Singapore. Tried to get a bit of an insider view. So having read a lot of policy documents as part of my master's degree, I wanted to understand what that was like from a teacher's perspective, what it actually was like to teach and to learn in these countries. So I, I actually contacted teachers often out of the blue and asked them if I could come and stay with them and help out in their schools. You also had a personal reason, maybe a gripe for doing this, right? Because you taught for several years in an inner city school, I think in London. That's right. So I became a bit disillusioned, actually, with, with the British school system. Teaching is obviously quite challenging anyway, um, and some of that is to do with, with the children's behavior, particularly in the, the area that I was in. But some of the challenges I felt also came from the system-level policy. So some of the decisions made by politicians I didn't think were particularly helpful. And I also realized that, I think similar to the U.S., there were far too many children leaving school without even basic mathematics and literacy skills. So when you reached out to these teachers in these countries around the world, uh, what did they say when you contacted them? I think they were surprised. I mean, the first Finnish teacher I contacted thought that it must be some kind of trick because I was <laughs> offering um, three weeks free English teaching. And so she thought there was some kind of hoax. But I, I sent around a, a short video introducing myself to, to would-be hosts, and that convinced them that I was genuine. They seem very keen to share their ideas. And that's one of the wonderful things about working in my sector is that educators generally are very open minded and keen to learn from one another. You know, it's interesting that you started with Finland. As a lot of listeners of our show know, my wife was an inner city teacher in the Bronx and here in the U.S. for quite a few years. And I also had a somewhat challenging experience with an overly bureaucratic system. And she often mm. talks about Finland as a country that is known among teachers as a country that really does education right. What is it? What's their secret? I think a number of things, some of which are quite well known and others that might surprise you. So one of the more well-known is that they don't start education uh, formally until children are seven years old. So they have high quality preschool before that. But the focus is, is much broader than it is in England. And as I understand it, in the US as well. So rather than trying to meet certain academic targets at age five or six, they're actually focusing on a much broader educational and social development before they actually start formal learning. There are activities, but it just isn't necessarily all about the academics. It's about those broader skills, which are going to get children ready for the academic content when they get there. Before getting back to the rest of the Finnish example, I really want to unpack this, this idea of kids not going to formal school before the age of seven. So what do they do so I think it's more actually what they don't do. Um, so I looked at some research on American kindergartens as well, and it did suggest that over the past decade, there's a lot less time for children to, to do self-directed play. And I think that's partly due to accountability measures. So what they're doing in Finland is they have qualified educators who are, who are running it. So this is not just childcare at all. They have educators who are helping the children to develop their pre-reading skills and their pre-math skills through playful learning. So, for example, that might mean um, an activity where children are sitting around in a circle um, and the teacher has a teddy bear in the middle and children shut their eyes and they have to count how many how many sweets are left after the teddy bear has eaten one. So, so you know, they are doing math, but it's in a playful way. So 
this isn't something that only Finland does. Actually, it's the same in, in Singapore, in China, in Japan. They're also not starting school till a little later. So in, in Japan, what they're doing is they're getting the children into small groups and teaching the children how to work together. And so the aim of, of that early childhood and the early childhood education is to bring children out of themselves and get them used to learning as part of a group with other children. So through working in groups, they actually don't tell children off for misbehaving. What they'll do instead is they'll suggest to the whole group that that child is a part of, oh, look, yellow group isn't ready yet. And that way the child learns that to be a part of the group with their friends, they have to take part in the activity that the teacher is suggesting. How large are those groups, Lucy? Are they, are they just like four or five kids? Yeah, four to six. Lucy, one of the things that jumped out at me is at least this perception that there's a great deal less diversity than there is here in the U.S., especially in uh, urban school systems. There certainly there are differences, and, and some countries have greater challenges than others. But I don't think that you can just dismiss the high performance of these countries simply because they are more monocultural. So Canada, for example, do very well in international tests, and they are a very diverse nation. Um, and they manage that. Finland is becoming more and more multicultural. One of the schools I was in had a lot of asylum seekers. So, so some of these other countries are also dealing with challenges. And it does make things harder, but it doesn't make doing better educationally impossible. It just means you need to be addressing those things deliberately. So, so it's not an easy solution, but it, it does involve more funding. So Canada, I mean, it differs across provinces, but they will put additional funding specifically into supporting extra language classes for these students. Another, another thing I saw was getting parents engaged as much as possible in the school. Um, so there are ways of dealing with it. What's the relationship between a student's home life, whether they come from a more privileged background, perhaps, and their PISA score? Unfortunately, there is a relationship between those two things in every single country that takes part in the PISA test. And it won't surprise you that the relationship is that students who are from a less advantaged home life tend to do worse on PISA. The interesting thing, though, is that the strength of that relationship is very different across different countries. Some countries seem to manage to do very well overall, while at the same time having quite equitable outcomes. So they are reducing that link between home life and, and PISA scores. And that is places like Finland, Canada, Japan, Estonia, all of whom are taking this approach of delaying tracking and, and setting students into different classes until they're 15 or 16. You also talk about the importance of free time and play for older students as well. And a lot of these high-achieving countries around the world actually give their kids more breaks from academics throughout the school day than we do in the U.S. and apparently in Great Britain. Yeah, in, in between lessons in particular. So rather than, rather than condensing all of the school day into the morning and the early afternoon, they might stretch that out a little. So have a 15 minute break in between every lesson and then finish the school day slightly later which means that kids get the chance to let off steam in between classes where they're being more focused i i think a lot of people in the states have this sense that asian systems school systems are more rigid in the u.s and that uh, uh, almost a militaristic style of behavior and school uniforms is required is, is that nonsense or is there any truth in that uh, there is there is some truth in that as well. I mean, if you're looking particularly at secondary school um, in Japan, certainly I would describe it just as you 
as you just have, actually. I was staying with um, an English teacher, actually. So her children were half Japanese and half English. So they were able to, to speak to me in fluent English about their own experiences. And one actually described it as like being in the army when she first went to junior high school. Um, because they do, they do have this strong emphasis on, on conformity, actually, which certainly is something which is less, less popular um, in the UK and, and in the US. But, but, but apart from that, I mean, it's not all like that. It's certainly not the case in primary schools. Um, and it's not the case outside of, of actual lessons. You know, in you in the U.S., the education of teachers, one of the strongest values is avoiding rote learning. You know what some people call drill and mm. kill. You know, memorization, all kinds of of more traditional styles of learning are very, very much frowned on. But you actually saw a fair amount of rote learning in some of the countries you visited. Mm. And I think it's a mistake to to do away with rote learning altogether. I think the, the, there's a key distinction actually between why you're doing the rote learning, if for example, you were doing rote learning of, of multiplication tables and key number facts in early primary, that can be hugely useful um, in terms of allowing children to be more creative with maths later on. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And our guest today is Lucy Crahan, the author. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Of Cleverlands, we're talking about differences in education systems all over the world. Yeah. Um, Lucy, before we go on to solutions, one of the things that you do recommend politicians do and governments do is when they design a curriculum, do it with fewer topics so that you allow teachers to go deeper into each subject. It seems like teachers are told what to do almost day by day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, and I found that very frustrating as a teacher myself. In fact, I remember a particular incident in a classroom. I was teaching science. I taught secondary science. And what were we doing? I think it was metabolism. And we had an exam coming up. So I was trying to get through the curriculum. And we, there was far too much to pack into the, the few weeks we had left. And one of my students, who was not usually that engaged, put his hand up and asked me, Miss, why do we sneeze? And unfortunately, my first response was to say, Ahmed, that's not a relevant question. Oh, and I boy. carried on teaching them about metabolism. And I just thought to myself, this is not why I became a teacher. No, and that's a I great question. I wanted to go yeah. with those questions. I, mean, I really, I wanted to inspire children to care about science and follow their interests. And because we had so much to cover and the stakes were too high in terms of me as a teacher, that was it. We're a show about solutions, and one thing that's so great about this book is that it's full of really interesting and 
and useful ideas for improving education anywhere in the world. So let's let's dive into a couple of your ideas, Lucy. I, I want to start with the importance of play. That's right. So particularly in the early years, um, I would to to stress that. So I would be worried, I suppose, if anyone were to read my book and take away the impression that I think that there should be more play in secondary schools within lessons um, or even even primary school, upper primary school within lessons. I think, you know, children are able to concentrate and should be encouraged to do so on academic content. So my point is more around when they do that. And I think in the early years, so from age three to age six or seven, it's really important that the learning is playful and play can be hugely beneficial for both academic um, and social outcomes. Um, and then also once you do start school, in between lessons, I think it's it's very important that children have that chance to give their brain a break, give their give their bodies a break, you know, run around, get the blood flowing so that they're then able to concentrate again when it comes to the beginning of class. Right. So the schedule shouldn't be too tight. There should be some breaks between classes, say 15 minutes. That's right. Yeah. Which a lot of schools don't have here. Mm. So another solution is you say support children to take on challenges rather than make concessions. What are you saying here? So this is one of the things that I saw that went across all of the top performing countries that I visited. They do it in different ways, but all of them have genuinely high academic expectations of all children. So what I mean by that is that rather than saying, oh, look, some children struggle with learning more than others. Let's give them easier work. Let's put them in a lower track. They're not going to reach the same standards as their peers. What these countries do instead is they say, "Okay, we can see that some children struggle with academic work more than others. So what we'll do is we'll still expect the same high academic outcomes of them, but we'll give them extra support. We'll keep them with their peers in the same class and we'll employ additional qualified teachers to work with those students in class, between classes, to make sure that they are able to keep up with their peers right up until age 15 or 16. Now, one of the most moving stories from what you just said comes from Japan, I think, where there really is this assumption that students do well because of effort rather than because they're smarter than other kids. Definitely. So the way in which teachers and parents and students view intelligence is really important to how well they ultimately do. I imagine some of your listeners will have heard of Carol Dweck's growth mindset which is the idea that intelligence is not something that you have or you don't have, but something which can grow dependent on the level of effort you put in. So that's the idea that the East Asians have. Um, So parents will teach that to their children. Teachers will praise students for the amount of effort they're putting in and the strategies that they're using rather than just saying, oh, well done, you're the top performer. And I think that really makes a difference to, to how the whole systems are structured, actually. You know, it's so funny. It's such a big cultural difference between East and West. I mean, we have this kind of cult of the genius. And I, I, I think that for kids especially, it, it's important to reward the, the effort and not just immediately say, oh, yeah, you did great because you're really smart. Exactly. So one other area that you talked about, and Finland is an, also a good example of this, is teacher training and the need to have teachers you know, receive enough training, get the right kind of mentorship and and support, and then also having a, a structure that rewards and respects all of the effort that goes into becoming a great teacher. Mm-hmm. So Finland, for example, they front load their teacher training, which means that to be a primary school teacher in Finland, you need a five-year degree. 
Um, and then those teachers are given quite a lot of autonomy to teach how they want after that. They're offered training, but they, they have freedom over which teacher training they attend, which professional development courses they attend. Is it fair to say that in the strongest performing systems, teachers tend to have higher status than they do in some other countries? Yeah, definitely. So you have highly educated teachers, um, which contributes to a higher status, which means that more people want to join the profession, which means that you can be more selective as to who you let into the profession, which then further makes it more prestigious. Um, and that, that you might think, well, that's great for those countries that manage that. But how, how, do, we, how do we get there? If you are in, in a country where actually it's not such a high status profession, how do you make that happen? So in Singapore, they actually pay for teachers training. They give them a salary while they're training. Um, in Finland, they they decided a little while back to shut down all of the, the local teacher training institutions and concentrate all of the teacher training in eight prestigious universities. You get the idea. They, they are making it prestigious by saying only our top academic institutions are allowed to train our teachers, and we're going to be very selective about who we let in. Another solution you write about in your book involves schools, and you say that combining school accountability with school support, in other words, instead of punishing a bad school, offer more help to improve standards in that school. I think this is really key and something that I actually find quite frustrating as as well as um, inspiring was asking head teachers in these schools in various countries, you know, what happens if a school is, is underperforming? And the response was always, well, we get help. They get supported to improve. And then there's a real contrast there between how how this situation is dealt with in the UK and I believe in the US as well, yes. where it's much more likely to be a sanction. So you might fire the head teacher, you might close down the school. I think in some states, the schools even get less money. And I think that's that's fundamentally the wrong approach because what that leads to is fear. And fear does not make teachers creative and thinking of new ways of doing things. In, in Shanghai, what happens is that if a school is underperforming, they will pay for the often the principal or, or a deputy principal with a school in similar circumstances that's doing much better um, and a few teachers to go to the underperforming school to work alongside the teachers and the leadership there even perhaps take over for, for, for a few weeks to show them how it's done well and then once they've trained up their, their colleagues from this lesser performing school they'll then go back to their own school. Let's talk a little bit about vocational schools. Is there a place in uh, the modern world for more hands-on uh, approach to learning for students who, who either struggle academically or, or prefer to go in that direction? Um, actually, in the modern world, there are fewer and fewer jobs that you can get, even if you have excellent vocational training. If you don't also have good literacy and good numeracy, you're still going to struggle to find a job, and you're certainly going to be less flexible in the modern workplace in terms of changing industries. So I think what I saw that did seem to work well was vocational schools in Finland and also in Singapore. So in Finland, they will start at age 16 and they're really, really high quality. And they do have the possibility of leading into university level study. So, Lucy, let's let's sum it up. Is there anything that you feel we haven't visited here in terms of solutions and fixes? Um, no, I, I think... I think essentially, if I was going to sum it up, 
in a couple of sentences. I'd say give students a, a good foundation, a broader education before you start with specific academics. Once they do start, have high expectations of all of them and support weaker students to keep up academically until age 15 or 16, at which point provide excellent vocational education um, alongside academic education for those who aren't keen on carrying on with the academic route. Pay your teachers well, give them additional training or introduce a career ladder so that teachers continue to improve throughout their career. That's great. Perfect. Lucy Crahan, author of Cleverlands. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jim, one of the things I'm struck by listening to Lucy Crayon is that in this country, we're having the wrong debate about education. The things that seem to get people most fired up are choice, vouchers, school assessments, tenure, as opposed to the things that Lucy was talking about, which is providing more uh, training for teachers and also more support for teachers and then letting these teachers who have enhanced status get on with it so that there's less constant everyday oversight and more confidence in what teachers and schools are doing. You know, it's a little bit like the show we did with Philip K. Howard talking about how to reform bureaucracies and other big institutions. Absolutely. Giving professionals a little bit more autonomy, holding them accountable, but giving them some leeway in how they execute within their areas of expertise. And teachers in this country certainly have um, are very precise standards that make it almost impossible to improvise. That example of not being able to answer the kid you know, who want to know why we sneeze. Every teacher in America would tell you, the more we emphasize improving standards, improving education, the more rules we lay on our teachers. So instead of having so many rules, have some broad principles and stick to them. Uh, you have an interesting example of the New York City school system where there are tons of rules and lots of great intentions, but because there's so many of them, they're not always followed through. It's made me a little cynical about the whole topic, honestly. You know, And again, I observe this secondhand my wife was a teacher for quite a few years in the New York City school system. And what I saw was fashionable ideas would be brought into the school. They would bring in a bunch of consultants. They'd have some program. There'd be some new website the teachers were all supposed to log into and, and update constantly. And then a few months later, it'd all be forgotten. And some of these ideas sounded pretty good, but there was no follow through. It was whoever threw out a grant, then the whole school would run after that particular program. Then the grant would go away and and they would more or less forget about it. I think one question that does run right through what Lucy Crahan is talking about is job satisfaction for teachers and student satisfaction with their learning to try and get more students engaged with what they're learning and have teachers happier about how they're able to teach. And it's something that's shared by the five places that Lucy went to, right. uh, Finland, Singapore, Shanghai, China, Canada, and Japan. The big thing for me, the biggest takeaway was, in many ways, this book is an endorsement of some fairly traditional teaching methods have fallen out of favor in American schools. The education of teachers and the values of education are very much about collaborative learning, not too much drill and kill, not too much rote learning very creative it's very interactive and these are all really wonderful things but she observed that some of these more traditional schools you know kids memorizing poetry kids memorizing uh, multiplication tables 
we tend to think that happens all the time in American schools. It doesn't happen as much as you think. Maybe sometimes those traditional methods are okay if if they're done in the right kind of environment. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer, and our music is from Lou Stravinsky. How Do We Fix It? Produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for joining us. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.